God is faithful. Sandra, thank you for encouraging us with that. Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John in chapter 1. If your household is at all like my household, uh, there is an anticipation for the month of December. And it's not just Christmas, all right? Christmas is a big deal, but that's when the next Star Wars movie comes out. Now, without a doubt, without a doubt, Star Wars is one of the most popular movies ever. Uh, millions of fans and millions of dollars have been made with Star Wars, right? Theme parks, animated TV series, video games, action figures, toys, costumes. There's lots of profit to be made from a sto- association with Star Wars. And Star Wars is a fun movie to watch, a fun movie to follow. You don't go to Star Wars to develop your theology of good and evil, of sin and righteousness. But it is true that in Star Wars, there is a clear de- distinction between good and evil, right? There is the light side of the Force, and there is the dark side of the Force. And of course, it's not just Star Wars that utilizes the light and the darkness imagery. We see that all over our culture, all over society. In fact, uh, scholars and historians would say that in almost every religion that is out there, there is the association, the imagery of light and darkness. And how it is uh, associated with good and with evil. Now last week as we open up our series in 1 John, we learned that the foundation of genuine Christian fellowship is Jesus Christ. Those who have placed their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ are brought into fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. If we want to be part of the fellowship of light, then we have to get Jesus Christ right. As we continue this morning in verses 5 through 10, we're going to see how John is expanding this theme of fellowship, outlining the conditions for the experience of fellowship or fellowship with God. This is a a difficult passage in many ways. In fact, scholars have debated many things about this passage. John Calvin on this passage writes, If we would enjoy Christ and His blessing... It is required that we be conformed to God in His righteousness and His holiness. So, I say that to spark your interest, and we're going to unpack these verses to see what does that mean, and how does this work itself out now. So, would you stand? We're going to read together 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you. That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Will you pray with me? Lord, we humble ourselves now and we confess our need of you. We need you to speak to us. Lord, we've come as broken people desiring to be mended, needing to be mended. We come as guilty, those who need to be pardoned. We need rescue this morning, Lord. 
So God, we pray that you would speak to us. You'd change us. Save us from ourselves. Save us from sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now in Scripture, the terms light and dark are used more often figuratively or symbolically than they are used literally. That is, they're used to point to something else, to represent or to stand for something else. And we understand this. We understand this because in our culture, we use the the imagery for light and darkness all the time. I mean, think about that. If your child has a bad day at school and they have to move their clip uh, in a direction that would lead towards a visit, a one-on-one visit with the principal, which direction are they moving it color-wise? Let me give you a hint. They're not moving it to angelic white or to shiny gold. No, they're moving it to a much darker color, The color actually happens to be the same color that's on the background of the skull and crossbones flag of the pirates, right? They're moving it to a dark color. We understand that dark represents wrong. It represents lack of knowledge. But light is representing purity. It's representing righteousness in this sense. Now, in verse 5, John is telling us that God is light. So I want to begin this morning with the center of the fellowship of light. The center of the fellowship of light. God is light, John says, writes in verse 5, and in Him is no darkness at all. So, after his opening words concerning fellowship, John is going to continue by pointing to the center of this Christian fellowship. But the question remains, what does John mean when he says that God is light. So I want to look first at the whole of Scripture to get a good grasp of this, but then specifically look at what John specifically has to say about light and darkness. So first we see this. In Scripture, light has everything to do with God's presence, with His protection, with His perfection. We recognize that in the beginning, God said, let there be light And there it was. So it's God's presence is there. God's perfection in the Exodus. God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush. It is light. And then as he leads his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, he leads them by a a, a cloud by day and a pillar, a pillar of light, a pillar of fire by night. It is his presence. It is his protection on his people. In the Psalms and in the prophets, God is a light. God's light is truth. Psalm 27.1, God is light and salvation. This is his presence, his perfection, his holiness, his presence. And then we move to the New Testament. We see that the light imagery is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Think about the opening verses of the Gospel of John. Verses 4 and 5. In Him, that is Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then just skip down to verse 9. The true light, that is Jesus, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So that Jesus is light means that light is life. Truth. Purity. That's why Jesus can say of himself in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light 
of life. So there's an overall scripture view of the light and the darkness imagery focusing specifically on light. But then we see the Apostle John uses it very, very specifically. He's contrasting in his writing, in the gospel, also here in the the epistles, uh, light is contrasted with life and darkness, with truth and falsehood, with love and hate, with knowledge and ignorance, with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Implicit in the light and the darkness imagery is the contrast between spiritual life and spiritual death. And connected to spiritual life and spiritual death is Righteousness, light as righteousness, light as holiness, and darkness and spiritual death, light, uh, darkness as wickedness, or darkness as unrighteousness. So John is pointing all these things out, and he wants us to know that, in fact, this last uh, picture there, this one of light as righteousness and dark as unrighteousness or wickedness, I believe is what is the forefront of John's mind here when he says that God is light. This idea of moral Purity. In fact, in John's Gospel, John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, this is exactly what John is getting at. After he speaks of how God loves the world and gave Jesus his only Son, that all who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life, in verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, we live in a society that is so relativistic. We have made everything dependent on ourselves or according to our own view, and we are rejecting absolute truth. This is what a postmodern society does. It rejects absolute truth. But the truth of the matter is, it's not just our society. There has always been this relativism that, is, that has characterized society after society. In fact, God, through the prophet Isaiah, was speaking to his rebellious people and to the nations all around to hear as well. And And this was true of them as well. Listen to what God says to the people. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See there is this misunderstanding. In fact it's a suppressing of the truth and unrighteousness. Where we would redefine what is good and holy, and redefine what is wicked and unrighteousness and invert them and think that we can get by with that as if it's no big deal. So then, darkness represents spiritual death and wickedness. And light represents spiritual life and moral purity. Darkness would represent spiritual death and wickedness and Light would represent spiritual life and moral purity. Now let's remember, John is writing ultimately to reassure his readers that they are of the truth, that they are in the true fellowship, that they are followers of Jesus Christ, that they are part of this fellowship of 
the lights. And he's concerned that those false teachers, many of whom have gone out from them because they were not really of them, are still trying to lead them astray or trying to take them with them from the genuine fellowship. As commentator Robert Yarborough writes, that God is light furnishes the standard and the means by which John will be able to diagnose error and propose propound corrective measures. In other words, because God is light and there is no darkness in Him at all, He is the center. And everything else is evaluated by Him. So there is right and wrong, and there is righteousness, and there is wickedness. And John is saying, look, if God is light, then He's the standard. So the teaching that I teach, the teaching that I give, is going is to conform to this standard. And everything else that doesn't conform, that doesn't point that direction. Stay away from. We're going to identify it as error. And then come the corrective measures. Now consider this. The Apostle John makes two very clear statements about who God is in 1 John. One is found there in verse 5 of chapter 1, right? God is light. A statement about the essential being of who God is, He's light. you know what the other statement is? That's right, God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. God is light. God is love. And what we see in 1 John, and we're going to see this week in and week out, is that such characteristics are necessarily true of those who would enjoy fellowship with God. In verses 6 through 10, John is noting conditions attached to the experience of fellowship with God. And in a nutshell, John is saying that living in darkness is incompatible with fellowship with God. Danny Aiken writes, God's nature defines the qualifications for fellowship with God. So I want to transition now to the next heading the conditions of fellowship of the light. The conditions of the fellowship of the light. So we see this in verses 6 through 10. And let me just say this from the outset. Ultimately, the conditions for fellowship with God are met in and by Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Ultimately, the conditions for fellowship with God are met in and by Jesus Christ. In His perfect life. In His atoning death. In His resurrection over the grave. It's always and it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that sins are forgiven and we are brought into fellowship with God. We're not saved by our own effort. We're not saved by our own goodness. We're not saved by our own righteousness. We're not saved by our own ability. We can't make ourselves right with God. And we could never earn our salvation. We are saved by God's grace and by God's grace alone. However, John is highlighting the ongoing, continuing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives whereby He is sanctifying us, whereby He is making us more like Jesus Christ in everyday life. What John is saying is that if we are in Christ, if we have fellowship with Christ, then there will be fruit in our lives. There will be change. Now, As with John Stott, I believe that the Apostle is clearly identifying and then confronting the claims of the false teachers. So, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. Three claims all marked by, if we say. Okay, that's the clue. If we say. 
this is what these false teachers would be claiming or saying to be true of them. So let's look again at verses 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. So John first then would be identifying the claim of the false teacher. If we say we have fellowship, and then in verse 7 he is correcting that. He's now pointing us to the truth. He's pointing us to to reality. Now, if the false teachers, as I mentioned last week, were Gnostics, then they were claiming to have a fellowship with God based off a special uh, revelation of truth. This was a special knowledge that they had somehow attained. Their fellowship with God wasn't gained through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was gained through a special knowledge that they were given, right? They claim to be spiritual people. They claim to be enlightened people. They claim to have insight that others didn't have. Now, I just want to take a step back from this for a moment and say this. Today, we wouldn't say that we know a lot of professing Gnostics, okay? There's probably a lot of people in here never even heard of what that is. But we know that Gnostics would say that all material things, all matter, are inherently evil. Right? So it's inherently evil. And really, the only things that are good and righteous, the only thing that can be, would be what is more eternal in nature, the soul. So, for a Gnostic, they would say that, you know, we're spiritual people because we have this knowledge that has come to us. The way that we live our lives, we're going to see this in the next point, ultimately doesn't make a big difference because we've kind of moved beyond that because what matters is the immaterial or the spiritual. And, hey, we have this special knowledge, so we are spiritual people. But I just want to think about our culture today. It is a good thing. It is an acceptable thing to be a, quote, spiritual person. We hear this all the time. We see it in movies. We see it with the movie stars. We see it in our culture. Hey, we're spiritual people. Now, it's okay to be a spiritual person as long as the type of spirituality that you have doesn't make any truth claims. Now, if you are the type of spiritual person that has truth claims, then, whoa, that's taboo. You can't have that. You can't say there's any kind of absolute truth. No, you can be a spiritual person, and as long as you define that on your own terms and not for anyone else, then that's okay. That's our world today, but that's not Christianity, is it? No, if we are in Christ, if the Spirit lives in us, we are, in a sense, spiritual people, right? We're spiritual. But it's a spirituality that is defined by truth, and it's bound in by the truth of who God is. Is Now, one of the problems with the false teachers was that their lives were not characterized by these boundaries. They weren't characterized by truth. They claimed fellowship with God, but they walked in darkness. They claimed to be intimate with God, to be spiritual, but they did not live according to truth. Now, to walk in darkness suggests habitually living in sin and unrighteousness. To walk in darkness suggests habitual living in sin and righteousness. It 
It implies being controlled by the desires of the world, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and not by God's desires, or not by desires for God or for righteousness. And John is simply saying, look, you may claim this, you may claim to have fellowship with God, but hear me say this, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. The Apostle John, excuse me, the Apostle Paul, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16 writes this, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So what is John saying? He's saying this. You do not have fellowship with God if your life is characterized by darkness. You do not have fellowship with God if your life is characterized by darkness. But in verse 7, John says, If you are really in fellowship with God, then you will walk in the light. Then you will practice the truth. Now, why is that? It's because God's Spirit has taken up residence within us. And His Spirit is transforming us and sanctifying us and making us more dependent on God, making us more devoted to God. Now, we're going to see this in a moment, but this is not about sinless perfection. Every single person in this room, Christian or unchristian, right, believer or unbeliever, struggles with sin. Every one of us does. And even this morning, we have struggled with sin. Thoughts that we shouldn't have think, words that we shouldn't have said, actions we shouldn't have taken, right? We have not loved as we could have loved. That donut that you could have left for the next person in Sunday school, you took for yourself, right? Like we struggle. Every single day we struggle. Today we have struggled. So this isn't about sinless perfection, but walking in the light means we walk with a Godward orientation. We walk with a Godward orientation. We are concerned about truth. We're concerned about righteousness. And notice the truths associated with those who walk in the light, right? They experience genuine fellowship with others, right? By the blood of Christ, brought into the body of Christ. And we experience fellowship, koinonia, with one another. Not only that, those who walk in the light experience forgiveness and purification through the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, hear me say this. Walking in the light is not what earns us God's forgiveness or God's fellowship. It's not that if we walk in the light good enough or long enough, then we have now merited, we have now earned God's forgiveness. Or we have earned fellowship with God. That's not it. However, what John is saying is that walking in the light gives evidence of our fellowship with God. It's those who walk in the light with a Godward orientation who have experienced God's grace. Now, look at verses 8 and 9, if you will. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If, however, we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, now these false teachers were likely claiming to be free of sin or Maybe, not, maybe they wouldn't say they were free totally of sin, but they were free from the guilt of sin. Now again, according to Gnostic philosophy, all matter and material things were inherently evil. So, while the human body was evil, 
if you had special knowledge from God, if you had a special insight from God that led to your salvation, you were now a spiritual person. And the outside really didn't matter because really it was just a covering for what really mattered, what was on the inside. Friends, that's, you know, we think about the resurrection from the dead. What, what we're saying is that God is redeeming, that our bodies matter. If our bodies didn't matter, there would be no resurrection from the dead. But our bodies do matter. This is one nail in the coffin of Gnostic philosophy. Right? Our bodies matter. But they were saying, no, we've reached a state of perfectionism. We're beyond sin. We're spiritual people. It doesn't matter what we do in the body because what really matters is on the inside. And the body is just a covering for our souls or for our spirit. So that makes no difference. It doesn't matter. We've moved beyond the realm of sin. In fact, our inside, our, our spirit is undefilable. It can't be contaminated at this point. This was what they were teaching. This is what a Gnostic would teach. They're beyond sin. They perhaps even made this a claim, a necessity, a requirement, this sinlessness for fellowship with God. But John says, look, if you're saying this, you are deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. You are out of touch with reality. Now, perhaps, friends... Uh, There's no one in this room who believes that we've reached a state of perfection where we no longer sin. But it's very likely that some of us live like our sin doesn't make us guilty. It's very likely that there are people in this room who believe that their sin doesn't make you guilty or that it just really doesn't matter. You know, we explain it away. It's wrong, but, but this is why. Here's my justification. And we explain it away. We have an excuse. It's wrong, but frankly, it's not my fault. And we've perfected the art of blame shifting. I read the story of a CEO this week. The CEO is getting ready to retire, and a new CEO is coming on board, and the, the, the retiring CEO wanted to help the new CEO in this position. And just very clearly say, look, I know you're going to have a great time, you're going to do a good job for this company, but you're going to make some mistakes. So I'm going to leave you some notes on what I did and how it could be helpful for you when you make these mistakes. So, you know, time passes on, and that first CEO, he made a decision, and it went south and went poor, poorly, and uh, he remembered what that old retired CEO said, so he opened the drawer and he found three envelopes there. He opened that first envelope and it said, just blame me, okay? So when you come to that first that first big mistake, just blame me, the former CEO, okay? So the new CEO did that, and it, it went fine. Some time passed along, and another mistake occurred, and he opened that second envelope, and it said, just blame the board this time. Blame the board. So he did that, and didn't go quite as well or quite as easy, but it bought him some more time until that third mistake came, and that third mistake wasn't, it wasn't a good thing, and he opened that envelope up, and it said, create three new envelopes at this point, Okay. Right? Like we have, we have perfected the art of blame shifting. It's not my fault. So maybe we don't deny our sin, but we deny that our sin makes us guilty. We deny that our sin makes us worthy of punishment or worthy of condemnation. This is our world today. But we're self-deceived. I'm reminded of... President Trump's claims from 2015 when he said that he was unsure if he has ever asked God for forgiveness. And he got a lot of backlash on that, you'll recall that. 
And then he explained that by saying, well, I, I take communion. And that's kind of like asking for forgiveness. And then last year, in 2016, he, in another interview, said, well, really what I meant to say is, I hope that I don't have to ask for forgiveness very much. I hope I can live in such a way where I don't have to ask for forgiveness very much. Friends, John says, freedom from sin is only possible when we confess our sins. Freedom from sin is only possible. Verse 9, when we confess our sins, when we humble ourselves, when we confess our sins, right? To confess our sin is to agree with God's assessment. In many ways, it's to testify against ourselves. It's to say, I was wrong. I'm guilty. I admit it. Commentator Colin Cruz writes, Authentic Christian living is not about sinlessness, or it's not about not sinning. Authentic Christian living is about acknowledging our sin and our need for God's grace. It's about humbling ourselves. Acknowledging our sin is necessary to following Jesus Christ. It's necessary. God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. So why is it we have such a hard time with confessing our sin? Honestly, in a lot of ways, it's because we're afraid that that God's going to punish us or love us less or maybe even reject us. But friends, the opposite is true. It's when we live in denial of sin or we seek to hide or sin or we seek to justify our sin that we have reason to fear. But when we will humble ourselves and confess it, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Listen, if we keep our sin in the dark, understanding that there's no, nothing is dark to God, He sees everything, right? But if we in our pride and our arrogance, we'll refuse to humble ourselves and confess our sin. If we will confuse to admit our need for a Savior, there is no remedy for sin. But if we will acknowledge our sin, if we'll confess it, then the remedy has already been provided in Jesus Christ. And when we do confess, God is faithful. He is true to His Word. He is just. He won't require another sacrifice for sin because the finished work of Jesus Christ pleads for me. It stands. He'll forgive us and He'll cleanse us based on Jesus' finished work. He won't hold our sin against us and He'll wash away all that would would impede fellowship with God. Now finally, look at verse 10, if you will. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Now, a lot of commentators would say that really, John is really saying the same thing in verse 8 and in verse 10. And granted, in, in many regards, they are say, it is saying the same thing. However, there are a few noticeable differences. In verse 8, sin is in the singular, but in verse 10, it's in the plural. Also in verse 8, if we say that we have uh, no sin, we are self-deceived, right? We, de- we, we deceive ourselves. But in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, Yes, we are self-deceived, but not only that, we're making God out to be a liar, right? Because God has clearly said in His Word that all of us are sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, right? 
So we're making God out to be the liar. Also notice the pattern in verses 6 and in verse 8 is that there is this, there is this uh, dealing with the false claim or the claim of the false teachers. And then there's an answer to it in verse 7. And then in verse 8, there's the false claim of the teachers. And then in verse 10, there's an answer to it. But here, there's not the same pattern isn't repeated. Just as if we say this, we make God out to be a liar and the, His word is not in us. It just kind of stops. Now, yes, it's going to go to chapter 2 and we're going to deal with it more there as well. But the pattern is not the same. Why is that? Well, perhaps the apostle is implying the seriousness of God, of calling God a liar and continuing to uh, live in arrogance and pride, unwilling to confess our sin and our need for a Savior. This is the seriousness of, of blasphemy in many ways, rejecting God's word, continual rejection of God's word, resulting in the ultimate hardening of one's heart. So friends, let's not test God. Why would we continually resist the Spirit of God and the Word of God when it's clear and we know this from our own lives? Why instead would we not be honest and humble ourselves and confess our sin and confess our need for God's grace? Right? Confession of sin is essential to experiencing fellowship with God and it paves the way to God's blessing and refreshing. And frankly, it neutralizes the accusations of Satan. Right? Satan, the deceiver, the accuser, is standing there wanting to accuse you before God of your sin. And he wants to heap guilt upon you. And cause you to wallow in that guilt so you can't move forward, so you won't move forward. He wants you to disbelieve the grace of God and the love of God. I mean, he wants to point to you and say, you're not worthy. How could you possibly do this? You're not worthy. God's not going to love you. God doesn't forgive you to do something like that. And then he'll say, God, look at what this person did. They're guilty. They're deserving of wrath. And guess what? When we confess our sin, you know what we're doing? We're saying, God, He's right. I'm guilty. I'm deserving of wrath. What He says is true. The accusation is true. However, there's a greater truth, friends. And the greater truth is that that has been paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has died on the cross for that sin. And he's cleansed us as we have put our hope and our trust in him. So church, forgiveness is full and free in Christ. We humble ourselves and confess. This text begs us to look to Jesus Christ who accomplished our salvation in every way. But this text also begs us to humble ourselves and to recognize our need for a Savior and to confess our sins, not to hide them. And this text begs us to evaluate our own lives. Are we walking in darkness? Are we habitually living in sin and unrighteousness? Or... Is there a Godward orientation? Does righteousness matter to us?
are we seeking by God's grace to live for God's glory? In just a few moments, we're going to transition to a time of surrender and invitation. And while we're singing, if you have questions about anything that was said here, if you have questions about what it means to be in fellowship with God or to experience the forgiveness of sin or the hope of eternal life, then I pray that you'll come talk to us. And if not now, get our attention. And we want to connect with you maybe in the foyer or sometime during this week. If you have other questions, questions about baptism or church membership, or maybe you want prayer, we're available and we want to, we want to connect with you. So in just a moment, after we pray, I encourage you to respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting and leading in your life. Because there's no question to me that the Spirit of God is at work. So for those of you who are in Christ and have received and experienced His forgiveness, worship Him. As we sing, worship Him and humble yourself before Him. And for those of you who have not yet experienced God's forgiveness because you have not yet placed your hope in Jesus Christ, recognize that the alternative is an eternity apart from God, in hell, as just punishment for sin, but call out to Him for a Savior. He is gracious and loving. Will you pray with me?